Subcommittee on Digital Assets, Financial Technology, and Inclusion Committee will come to order. Without objection, the chair is authorized to declare a recess of the committee at any time. This hearing is entitled Crypto Crime in Context, Breaking Down Illicit Activity in Digital Assets. Without objection, all members will have five legislative days within which to submit extraneous materials to the chair for inclusion in the record. I now recognize myself for four minutes to give an opening statement. Today we're building on our previous hearings and our classified briefings to better understand the full picture on the illicit use of digital assets. The goal is to dive deeper, debunk some of the myths, and ensure that we as policymakers have all the facts. I'd be remiss if we began this hearing without acknowledging the reports that digital assets have been used to help Hamas fundraise for the attacks carried out against Israel. In the aftermath of these attacks, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal that reported that Hamas received a significant portion of its funding from digital assets. A subsequent letter sent by members of Congress stated that Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad has raised over $130 million in crypto, to which the blockchain analytics firm cited by the Wall Street Journal issued a correction, and I quote, there's no evidence to suggest that crypto fundraising has raised anything close to this amount, and the data provided by Elliptic and others have been misinterpreted. So despite the reports of the relatively small role that digital assets uh, have been reported to have played in Hamas's fundraising efforts, I want to be unequivocally clear uh, at this committee today. This committee is for all means available to shut down illegal, illicit terror finance period, full stop, whether it takes place in crypto, cash, or through Hawala. That's why Senator Loomis and I sent a letter to the DOJ about the need to go after specific bad actors within the crypto industry. More than 50 members also joined an effort led by WHIP, Tom Emmer, Chair Patrick McHenry, Congressman Torres, and myself to better understand the size, scope, and duration of Hamas's fundraising through digital assets. At the end of the day, bad actors will continue to use any means possible to conduct their illicit activity, but phones and the internet aren't to be blamed by terror financing, and crypto shouldn't either. We must examine these issues head on and separate fact from fiction, and that's why we're here today. Based on the member engagement on this issue from both sides of the aisle, our fact-finding mission is not partisan in any way. Members in this room must better understand the degree of illicit activity, understand how we, you can use blockchain technology to combat illicit activity, examine the analytic tools that are currently available to combat this activity, and explore gaps that may prevent and detect illicit activity. As the Department of Treasury itself has acknowledged, most virtual currency activity is licit, not illicit, so blockchains do provide law enforcement with the unique and novel insight into criminal organizations and their funding networks. Law enforcement has been very adept at leveraging this information to clamp down on criminals, in part by choking off their access to the on and off ramps. The witnesses today are best suited to ensure that we leave no stone unturned and fully discuss the issues at hand. I thank the witnesses for uh, being with me and being with our group today, and I look forward to the discussions. I look forward to working with Ranking Member Lynch and the members of the subcommittee. And uh, now let me turn to the ranking member for five-minute opening statement. Thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. I want to thank our witnesses for your willingness to help out the committee with its work. Uh, 
This is an important hearing to examine the efforts to combat illicit activity in the digital asset sector. In the wake of the devastating terrorist attacks perpetrated by Hamas against Israel on October 7th, the Treasury Department is continuing to evaluate the role of digital assets, including cryptocurrencies, in financing terrorists and other criminal activities. As stated by Deputy Treasury Secretary Wally Adeyemo this month, the Biden administration is already working with Congress and crypto stakeholders to identify additional actions that might further prevent illicit activity in the digital asset space. Uh, this committee has received multiple classified briefings from Treasury and U.S. intelligence officials on the extent to which the Iranian regime and its proxies, including Hamas and Hezbollah, have utilized digital assets in financing regional and global terrorism. While we will continue to evaluate the precise sources of revenue for Hamas and other militant groups, public reports do indicate that there is some cause for concern. Uh, notably, the Wall Street Journal estimated that digital currency wallets li linked to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad received as much as $93 million, with Hamas receiving about $42 million between August 22nd and June 23. FinCEN also recently publicly identified the illicit use of so-called international convertible virtual currency mixing by North Korea, Hamas, and other malicious state and non-state actors as an acute money laundering concern and a serious national security risk. The crypto industry and its advocates have been quick to defend themselves, claiming that the amount of funding that has flowed through crypto channels is overestimated and is small in comparison to the amount of terrorism financing that flows through traditional finance. I don't necessarily buy that argument, as we have learned that it does not take much to fund terrorism. It is beyond argument, however, that crypto remains the preferred currency of organized crime and of various cyber attacks. The criminal use of crypto has also dramatically escalated as high corruption governments that operate as safe havens for money laundering have continued to court unvetted crypto investors through purposeful deregulation. There are key features of crypto assets such as inherent pseudonym pseudonymity and their decentralized nature that make them vulnerable and highly useful for illicit activity, including ransomware attacks. Treasury's recent, quote, action plan to address illicit finance risks of digital assets recognizes that cyber criminals often require ransomware payments in the form of digital assets, frequently via Bitcoin. According to an industry report, crypto payments to ransomware attacks reached $449 million in the first half of 2023, which is up 40% from the same period last year. Victims of the largest ransomware attacks include hospitals, government offices, energy centers, and other critical entities that cyber criminal gangs identify to generate the largest ransoms. Just this week, we learned that the U.S. Financial Services Division of China's ICBC Bank was hit by a massive ransomware attack that disrupted trades in the U.S. Treasury market. The likely perpetrator of the attack, the hacking group Lockbit, has received tens of millions of dollars in Bitcoin as ransom payments in relation to over 1,400 attacks. Now, I look forward to working with this subcommittee to examine further the ways in which cryptocurrency vulnerabilities are being used for all types of crimes, including money laundering, financial sanctions evasion, 
tax evasion, and other corruption-related crimes, such as bribery and embezzlement. And uh, again, I appreciate the willingness of this esteemed panel uh, to uh, add their expertise to this debate. With that, Mr. Chairman, I'll yield back. Gentleman yields back, and now the uh, chair recognizes the distinguished uh, chairman of the full committee, Financial Service Committee, Mr. McHenry of North Carolina for one. Thank you, Chairman Hill. Thank you for holding this hearing. Uh, it's our job to cut through the noise and get to the facts, and I appreciate uh, the witnesses being here uh, today to testify about an important thing for members of Congress to better understand, and that's the use of digital assets for illicit purposes. We want to know the extent of it and ways that we combat it. There have been conflicting reports regarding Hamas's fundraising efforts through digital assets. We know they use the traditional banking system and have. Um, we know that they uh, misuse cash and other forms of currency. Um, and uh, we know that bad actors uh, prey on vulnerabilities wherever they can find them. Uh, there is a bipartisan agreement, though, that we must hold these bad actors to account uh, in every way possible, and specifically when it comes to digital assets and the digital asset ecosystem. Um, it's important to note that digital assets are built on transparent, open, distributed ledger technology, making it far easier to detect and track illicit activity. Uh, that is a good thing and useful thing, and I hope we can put aside the preconceived notions uh, uh, some may have and rely on the testimony of our witnesses today to draw conclusions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for your leadership, and I thank members for indulging this committee in, uh, in an afternoon after a long week and a long 10 weeks that we've had in session. Thank you, Chairman Hill. Thank you, Chairman McHenry. And today we're proud to welcome the testimony of Bill Hughes. Mr. Hughes is Senior Counsel and Director of Global Regulatory Matters at Consensus, a blockchain technology company. He was previously Associate Deputy Attorney General at the Department of Justice. Jonathan Levin, Mr. Levin was co-founder and Chief Strategy Officer at Chain Analysis, one of the largest blockchain analytic firms. Greg Lisa, Mr. Lisa is the Chief Legal Officer at Delvi, a, a DeFi startup and Senior Counsel at Hogan and Lovells, LLP. He was also formerly an interim director at the Office of Compliance and Enforcement at FinCEN. Jane Kodolkovsky uh, was a partner at Arcturus, a law firm dedicated to emergent technologies and previously a trial attorney and human trafficking finance specialist at the U.S. Department of Justice's money laundering and asset recovery section. And Allison Jimenez is the president of Dynamic Securities Analytics, Inc., a litigation consulting firm specializing in securities, cryptocurrency, and money laundering. We thank each of you for taking time to be here. Each of you will be recognized for five minutes to give an oral presentation of your testimony. Without objection, each of your written statements will be made a full part of our record. Mr. Hughes, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Hill, Ranking Member Lynch, and distinguished members of the subcommittee. My name is Bill Hughes, and I thank you for the invitation to testify on the important issue of illicit activity in digital assets. This is a critical topic for the Congress to debate, and I applaud your leadership in bringing this attention uh, to the attention of the committee and this subcommittee specifically. I work as a senior legal counsel at Consensus Software, Inc., a blockchain software developer that is headquartered in Fort Worth, Texas. Our firm develops and offers the most popular unhosted wallet software in digital assets, the MetaMask wallet. The wallet is an interface that allows the user to read and write to the blockchain without any intermediary's help, akin to how a web browser is a consumer's direct connection to the web. The wallet also safeguards a user's private key, which is the cryptographic password, which the user must have to control a particular blockchain account, also called a public address. 
Users in the US and across the globe are free to use a long list of wallets to read and write to the blockchain and to securely store their private keys. As a US-based blockchain technology company, we believe that it is good that technology providers are expected to follow the law. In our experience, US-based blockchain projects generally do. Permissionless blockchain networks are new technologies that have real value and present exciting new opportunities, but we at the same time must not accept or equivocate about bad actors using these technologies to commit crimes. How the law should evolve to meet the dynamic threat of illicit finance is an important issue, and we are glad to be part of that discussion. Combating money laundering is a difficult task in any space, but digital assets present capabilities with respect to tracking and disrupting money laundering that law enforcement and the public at large have never had before. Because open, permissionless blockchain ledgers are reviewable by anyone, anywhere, transactions can be traced using blockchain analytics technology, even those transactions that are purposefully complicated to obfuscate the flow of funds. Any policy response to the threat of money laundering should embrace the transparency of the blockchain and bolster the power of transaction analytics if it hopes to be successful. While analytics technology is helpful now, it must continue to improve if illicit finance and digital assets is going to be sufficiently addressed. We think on-chain user security is also essential, and that is a core focus of consensus when we think about MetaMask users. Digital assets also present some new challenges. Today, critical weaknesses remain the centralized entities, specifically those that provide central order book exchange services. It is important to keep in mind during our discussion today that traditional finance remains the overwhelmingly popular space for launderers to operate, and the estimated volume of illicit on-chain activity when compared with illicit activity is remarkably low. Regardless, illicit finance is a serious concern that deserves our attention, and we must be vigilant that such use of digital assets does not become more prevalent. This can be done by getting more global uniformity in regulating exchanges and stablecoins. Policymakers should consider regulatory sandboxes to improve not only blockchain analytics technology, but also technologies around digital identity. Blockchain offers the opportunity to actually improve privacy protections and data security while also achieving compliance. And we should not turn it down, but rather fully explore what is possible. We must also improve public-private collaboration on difficult policy issues such as those presented by decentralized finance, and bolster intelligence sharing to put law enforcement in its best position to trace, stop, and recover laundered funds. Productive policies with respect to combating money laundering using digital assets is a net good for the blockchain ecosystem. And I am encouraged by this subcommittee's, subcommittee's attention to these important matters. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ms. Hughes. Mr. Levin, you're recognized for five minutes. Good afternoon, Chairman Hill, Ranking Member Lynch, and members of the subcommittee. My name is Jonathan Levin, and I'm one of the co-founders of Chainalysis, the leading blockchain analysis company. I'm grateful for the opportunity to testify again before this committee at this important time, as the current issue at hand is particularly close to my heart. The tragic events beginning on October 7th have shined light on our core focus at Chainalysis, detecting and disrupting bad actors that use cryptocurrencies for terrorist financing and other illicit purposes. We have spent over, uh, almost a decade working with law enforcement agencies, intelligence services in the United States, Israel, 
and other, other allied countries around the world to maximize disruption of these networks. Our many joint successes have marked the dawn of a new era of financial intelligence for governments around the world. Financial intelligence has historically been composed of government collections and reporting from financial institutions. This is typically not real time and is highly dependent on domestic services and institutions to report on suspicious activity. Insights into international transactions is often mirrored in complex international collaboration and information sharing arrangements. Cryptocurrencies mark a departure from this era. It's able for all governments around the world to have access to every single transaction that has ever happened in cryptocurrencies, and the information sharing about these transactions allows for full networks to be uncovered. Cryptocurrency transactions are inherently public, and the data from those transactions is preserved on a transparent and immutable ledger. At Chainalysis, we analyze these transactions from blockchain networks, and in conjunction with open source information and our proprietary data collection, we map the ecosystem of participants in these networks. We then provide software solutions, data, and investigative support to allow investigators to trace the flow of transactions and identify potential illicit activity. To that end, I want to offer some additional context on the use of cryptocurrencies to finance Hamas and other similar groups and how that activity actually gets disrupted when governments work with Chainalysis and in the industry. There is evidence of terrorist organizations operating in Gaza attempting to raise funds using cryptocurrency as early as 2016. This involves both the use of cryptocurrency directly, but also by networks of enablers and facilitators that leverage otherwise legitimate services to finance terrorist activities. These services could be Hawala services and over-the-counter exchanges. Historically, the broader network of enablers has been very difficult to detect and disrupt when moving, when moving fiat currency. However, the utilization of crypto by these networks has now made it possible for law enforcement to detect and disrupt these terror financial donation campaigns. For example, in August 2020, the Department of Justice announced that with the aid of Chainalysis, it had dismantled the terrorist financing campaigns by the military wing of Hamas and by ISIS and seized millions of dollars worth of cryptocurrencies. Similarly, in the past two years, the Israeli government, again with the support of Chainalysis, has undertaken multiple successful seizures of cryptocurrencies intended for groups supporting Hamas and including those of Hezbollah and Iran's Quds Force. In practice, this has involved international collaboration, trusted private-public partnerships, and work with the private sector to freeze both the accounts at cryptocurrency exchanges and other wallet addresses associated to this financing. In 2023, Hamas publicly announced that it was shutting down its campaign to accept cryptocurrency as donations citing successful government efforts to prosecute donors. And despite their own acknowledgement of you know, them ceasing to stop using cryptocurrencies and the inherent ineffectiveness of this method, we continue to work with law enforcement around the world to detect and disrupt the use of cryptocurrency by Hamas and the different entities facilitating and enabling their actions. The reality, though, is more can be done. 
First, the federal government should provide a path to compliance for digital asset industry in order to increase the amount of domestic touch points for stablecoin issuers and cryptocurrency exchanges for appropriate federal regulation. Second, we need to continue to close the gap on international partners that allow for unlicensed exchanges to continue to operate. And finally, and perhaps most importantly, the United States should prioritize arming the government with the necessary resources to disrupt this activity with real-time data, sophisticated technology, and cutting-edge expertise. I look forward to answering any of your questions. Thank you very much. Mr. Lisa, you're recognized for five minutes. Thank you so much, and good afternoon, Chairman Hill, Ranking Member Lynch, and members of the subcommittee. I very much appreciate the opportunity today, and I also want to extend my thanks to your staff. They've been nothing short of exceptional in arranging this today. My name is Greg Lisa. I'm the Chief Legal Officer of Delve, a DeFi startup. I'm also Senior Counsel at Hogan Levels, where I used to be a partner for five years. Most of my career, though, has been in government service, starting at the U.S. Department of Justice for 12 years, 10 of which I was a federal prosecutor in the organized crime section, prosecuting organized crime and illicit finance and public corruption cases. Uh, after that, in 2011, I joined the CFPB as one of the uh, agency's first enforcement attorneys. And then uh, shortly after that, I joined FinCEN, first in the casinos and MSB section. It's where we had some of the very first AML cases against crypto companies. And then later headed up the Office of, the Com office of Compliance and Enforcement at FinCEN. I'd like to address a couple of, uh, a couple of issues, if I may. Uh, first around blockchain analytics and financial investigations, and then also the illicit finance risk connected to crypto. I, I think almost all criminal activity, maybe with the exception of crimes of passion and a handful of others, are connected to uh, profit motive, are connected to the desire to gain money. And even without some of those, uh, even absent some of those crimes, for instance, in ideological terrorism, uh, those can't succeed without equipment, logistics, and funding. So it's not surprising that it's a mantra of every prosecutor, of every regulator, uh, to say, follow the money. Because if you find where the profits are flowing, you find where the leaders are, where the financiers are, and where the organization is actually going to be most impacted by disruption. The reality is this, though, for investigators and prosecutors. Traditional financial investigations are difficult and, and cumbersome. Sometimes they're ineffective for that reason. Smoking guns are incredibly rare. Those investigations are put together one brick at a time with bank records, with MLAT requests for foreign records, for opaque or sometimes misleading business documents. Uh, and so sometimes it just requires a bit of luck for investigators to actually disrupt a criminal enterprise. Blockchain investigations are different. The characteristics and nature of most blockchains, transparency, accessibility, immutability, and reliability, provide significant advantages in helping to detect and prevent illicit finance. Over the last several years, public-private partnerships have yielded some amazing successes, ranging from Silk Road to Bitfinex to Welcome to Video to BTCE and countless others. Let's talk, please, about the illicit finance risk connected to crypto. And it depends on who you ask if you're looking for metrics and data. Because the estimates range from anywhere north of 50% of all crypto use being illicit to less than a fraction of a percent. Uh, respectfully, I think that both numbers are wrong. Uh, I try to lay that out, the reasons why, in my formal testimony. It is clearly important that we not underestimate the risk around crypto, as with any financial instrument, um, because we cannot have crypto being the source of the next economic meltdown or the source of the next 9-11. We can't forget the fact that criminals and terror financiers are adaptive, they're innovative, they're 
often tech savvy and they're always resourceful. But there's also a very real chance that overreaction, especially overreaction in regulation, will simply serve to drive crypto underground, uh, offshore and beneath the radar. Regulation can work and it should, but overreaction with regulation can undermine exactly what we're trying to do. It can make compliance impossible. It can divert resources away from actual risk. It can make unregulated environments and jurisdictions the only places where companies succeed and survive. As a result, an overreaction can jeopardize national security. It can make our problems far worse. Ceding ground to China, Russia, or other jurisdictions may be far worse. The US is the center of the international financial system for good reason. It's known for its strength and for its stability, its resilience, and its safety. It's home to much innovation and many of the world's entrepreneurs. It's hardly perfect, but the US also leads in anti-money laundering oversight. Other countries and economies look to us for responsible, bold, and thoughtful leadership. There's no guarantee that that will always be the case. If we fail in US leadership, either by underreacting or by overreacting, we run the risk that we relinquish our role and other nations look elsewhere, including to other jurisdictions that might not have our same national interests and maybe even hostile to us. The national security implications of that would be far-reaching and potentially irreversible. Getting this right is existential for the industry as well. People won't put their funds in a system that they don't trust. Nobody wants to provide liquidity to Hamas or to the North Korean weapons regime or to have a Russian oligarch or a drug lord as their counterparty. Getting this right and, accept and addressing this risk is critical to the legitimacy of this industry and I submit to our national security. Thank you again for the opportunity and I look forward to the committee's questions. Thank you, Mr. Lisa. Ms. Kodar Kowalski, please, you have five minutes. Thank you, Chairman Hill. Ranking Member Lynch and members of the subcommittee for holding this hearing and inviting me to participate. I'm honored to speak with you today and grateful to contribute to this discourse. In 1992, when I was a child, my family and I left Odessa, Ukraine as refugees. I sit before you the product of the United States leadership in innovation and promotion of democratic ideals while countering illicit finance and autocratic regimes. As a trial attorney and human trafficking finance specialist, in the money laundering and asset recovery section of the US Department of Justice, I investigated and prosecuted financial crimes. It was critical to follow the money to detect, dismantle, and disrupt criminal activity and to ensure that assets could be seized and forfeited, depriving criminal networks of their ill-gotten gains. I'm often asked why I transitioned from DOJ to the private sector to work in the blockchain space. The answer is quite simple. I believe that this technology is critical to the future. As a particular technology and the way in which it is used evolves, so too should the risk-based analysis of whether the legislative, regulatory, and legal framework should follow. The US has robust anti-money laundering and counter-terrorist laws and regulations that apply to the digital asset ecosystem. This framework has helped stop illicit activity while leveraging the attributes of the blockchain, traceability, transparency, and immutability. U.S. centralized cryptocurrency exchanges and fiat on off-ramps conduct transaction monitoring using blockchain forensics to identify suspicious activity regardless of whether the transaction occurred on their platform and cut off bad actors. This contrasts with traditional financial institutions which only have visibility into customers or transactions that occur within their bank. In response to OFAC sanctions, U.S.-based stablecoin issuers can blast, uh, blacklist interactions with an application and freeze assets in wallets. 
The ability to freeze wallet addresses on the secondary market to comply with sanctions is unique to blockchain, not banks. While Chainalysis 2020 data suggests that the percentage of all cryptocurrency activity associated with illicit activity was 0.24%, bad actors continue to exploit traditional finance. Related to Russia, DOJ seized yachts worth just under $1 billion, real estate worth an estimated $75 million, and more. None were reported to be purchased with cryptocurrency. Russia continues to evade sanctions using gold, oil, and other strategic sectors. Human traffickers from China, Mexico, and elsewhere use cash, funnel accounts, and shell companies to profit from the exploitation of others. Terrorist organizations also diversify their funding streams. In recent weeks, news headlines focus on cryptocurrency. But terrorists also use global investment portfolios, charities, foreign aid, hawalas, and cash. There is no public ledger for cash or hawalas. No amount of funds for terrorism is acceptable, but we cannot be myopic. So while autocratic regimes and terrorist organizations use every tool in their arsenal, vulnerable populations turn to the digital asset ecosystem. When Russia invaded Ukraine, my family scrambled to assist loved ones. Owners' compliance processes at banks and MSBs caused long delays, leaving many with limited to no access to necessary funds. Ukraine has raised 100 million in crypto after soliciting for donations, and Ukrainians used Bitcoin and Ether to support themselves. In the aftermath of the barbaric terrorist attack by Hamas and Israeli civilians, once again, humanitarian aid came in the form of crypto. I believe U.S. lawmakers must recognize that juxtaposition. The U.S. must lead to stop the jurisdictional arbitrage foreign actors are exploiting. In July 2023, FATF urged countries to implement travel rule requirements as only about 29 of 98 jurisdictions had done so. With this context, I recommend to lawmakers to consider, first, to ensure that compliant U.S.-based companies in the digital asset ecosystem remain in the United States to avoid increased criminal activity offshore, technological decline, and undermining of U.S. interests. Second, to use tools to isolate autocratic regimes that use technology to surveil their civilian communities, undermine basic liberties, and fund terrorism. And third, to lean into innovation through genuine sandboxes where the private sector showcases in a prudent and compliant manner tools to leverage activity-based risk management on public ledgers. I'm grateful to share my experiences to ensure the United States continues to be the epicenter for innovation and stand staunchly against autocrats and terrorists. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Manis. You're recognized for five minutes. Thank you for the invitation to appear before you today to discuss illicit activity in digital assets. My name is Allison Jimenez. I am an economist and president of Dynamic Securities Analytics. For 25 years, I've been examining financial crime and money laundering issues. Recently, much of my research has focused on the use of cryptocurrency in illicit finance. Before addressing cryptocurrency crime specifically, it's useful to understand how a bad actor evaluates financial products generally. When a bad actor wants to conduct a financial transaction, they will assess whether a financial product can move funds first, fast, second, far, third, in large amounts, fourth, irreversibly, fifth, anonymously, and sixth, can you move it to a third party? There's no one feature that drives a bad actor to a particular financial product, and anonymity is just one feature bad actor's way. While a truckload of nickels and dimes is anonymous, it cannot be moved far or fast. Cryptocurrency is attractive to bad actors because it has so many of the features they value in a financial product. Blockchain-based cryptocurrency transactions move far, fast, 
in large amounts, irreversibly, anonymously, and to third parties. Dismissing cryptocurrency as a useful tool for illicit finance just because some transactions are recorded on the blockchain is misguided and wholly inconsistent with cryptocurrency suspicious activity reports, FBI advisories, and victim complaints. My research into cryptocurrency SARS suspicious activity reports found, first, the number of SARS related to cryptocurrency is growing exponentially. There were 92,000 crypto SARS filed in 2021. Um, there were more filed in that one year than from 2013 to 2020. Second, bad actors, some bad actors prefer to use cryptocurrency over many other financial products. For example, there were more cryptocurrency SARS in 2021 than for all security and all investment type SARS for a six-year period from 2014 to 2020. Next, the dollar value of cryptocurrency SARS hovers around $1 million, with more than $96 billion in suspicious transactions reported in 2021. Take, for example, ransomware. The number of ransomware SARS is increasing dramatically. Bad actors are exclusively demanding payment in cryptocurrency, and the average Bitcoin ransom paid was over $900,000. Cryptocurrency SAR-related filings overwhelmingly conflict, uh, contradict the thesis that bad actors don't use crypto. Next, the FBI has issued numerous advisories based on victim complaints from your constituencies about cryptocurrency scams, and I'll focus just on one, pig butchering. Pig butchering is a horrific crime, and it's a type of romance scam which leverages uh, the features of cryptocurrency to defraud Americans. Scammers fatten up the victims by faking intimacy via an online relationship before turning the conversation into a can't-lose crypto investment scam. Last year, the FBI received over 30,000 complaints about cryptocurrency investment scams, and victims reported over $2.6 billion in losses. Compounding the horror to the American victims is the scammer on the other end of the text message or emails are often victims of human trafficking that were lured to fake job ads and now held against their will in scam, scam compounds in Southeast Asia and forced to meet quotas under the threat of violence from transnational organized crime groups. Finally, turning to blockchain analytics. If all cryptocurrency transactions were an iceberg, the crypto transactions that are subject to blockchain analytics is just the tip. Here's why. Most crypto transactions occur off the blockchain within exchanges, thereby, thereby evading blockchain analytics. And for those transactions that are on chain, bad actors have taken multiple steps and methods to obfuscate their activity using mixers, chain hopping, and side chains, for example. And finally, attribution remains an ongoing challenge, especially in the private sector, who may not have the same access to data and information as law enforcement and US intelligence. Thank you, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you very much. As everybody can see, we have an excellent panel that'll be very good on this topic. We're now gonna to turn to member questions, and the chair recognizes himself for five minutes of questioning. Just on that last uh, comment Ms. Uh, Jimenez was making, you know, as a, as a banker for 40 years, uh, filing a SAR doesn't necessarily mean a crime has taken place. But I, it would not surprise me that crypto SARs go up because no one knows what crypto is in banks. And so if they see a crypto type transaction, they may file a suspicious activity, which is a good thing. That's what we want them to do to provide that data. And that's how we learn and have a better supervisory uh, uh, process. I want to start out um, 
Mr. Levine and talk a little bit about this Wall Street Journal story, which is in, in some ways what prompts us all to be here today, not completely, but we would be talking about illicit finance with crypto, period. But with uh, what's happened in the last month and with the publicity around it, it certainly is a, a triggering uh, event. You testified that DOJ and Israel uh, have used blockchain analytics and other tools to shut down Hamas, ISIS, and Iran's use of crypto. And uh, so my first question is, um, when you look at the Wall Street Journal uh, story saying that $130 million worth of digital assets over the past few years has been uh, sent to ISIS, and you're suggesting that uh, that was severely misinterpreted. Tell us how that is the case. Thanks, thanks Chairman. The, the information and the figures quoted are a representation of both the amounts that can be linked to actual terrorist financing, such as a group like Hamas, but also the broader network of facilitators and intermediaries that were caught up in the network of financial terrorism. So, um, well, financing terrorism. So when you look at these headline figures, it can contain a lot of legitimate activity over the years that those businesses were in operation. And the amount that is strictly linked to terrorist activity has to be investigated by government agencies and shown that this, these specific amounts were actually linked to Hamas financing. So that's where you know, the distinction that we show in our work is that you know, when the Israeli authorities list addresses or when OFAC lists addresses that are associated to actors, you know, there, is, there has to be a distinction between sort of the enablers that are being disrupted and the actual money that is being given to terrorists. So, and just on the ransomware topic, um, and which is also connected to this general theme, the FBI, for example, in Colonial Pipeline uh, used chain analytics type uh, analytical tools to basically get that money back. So Ms. Amanez is saying, for example, that people use side chains, off chain mixers to inhibit their uh, being identified on the blockchain. So do you agree with that? And if so, how does this committee direct the executive branch to stop that? The executive branch needs the tools and capabilities at their disposal to go after these issues. And you know, my thought about the way that that should happen is that they need better access to data, better access to software and expertise to actually affect those types of operations. So are you, are you saying that if you have that, actually those don't obfuscate somebody's identity, they, you can penetrate that and find them? Yes, you can, you can find ways to penetrate these networks, particularly those that are sophisticated and large scale, because those are ones that the government can actually put resources behind to get after. Well, this is a really important point because particularly over in the Senate, we're talking about rewriting all the rules of the road here. And uh, I wanna make sure the tail is not wagging the dog. In other words, I wanna make sure that we provide the resources to the intelligence community, to the Treasury Department, uh, to look through that uh, pseudo anonymity and convince members of Congress that you know that's a doable thing and not go off on a side so chasing down something that is very challenging to do. Uh, so 
can you give us more specifics in writing on precisely what, so that our members can be more informed about how to make that happen? Yeah, we would be happy to provide so, sort of additional support on writing on, on the current state. I would say that, you know, the government has come a long way since I first testified in front of this committee on being able to actually leverage this technology. There's a lot more that can be done with proactive detection and data that I think the government needs to take extra steps in being able to prevent the next sort of Thank terrorist you. financing. Thank you very much. I look forward to that. Uh, my time's expired. I now call on the ranking member for his five minutes of questions. Uh, thank uh, you, Mr. Chairman. <clears throat> uh, Mr. Jimenez, uh, the decentralized, borderless, and, and pseudonymous features of digital assets, as well as their convenient access store and transfer features, are highly attractive to bad actors, as you've, you've mentioned, that they they satisfy the needs and, and the, the preferences of, of bad actors, uh, uh, criminal enterprises, as well as uh, other, other actors who uh, would operate globally and uh, much to the detriment of the integrity of our financial system. So we have much to lose here uh, because there's so much faith and trust in the U.S. financial system uh, that, uh, again, the advantages of having the reserve currency of choice and, and having trusted financial institutions would disappear if, if, if that were undermined. I know you've had some experience in dealing with, uh, with some, uh, some state-operated uh, uh, criminal enterprises such as North Korea. And I wonder if you could talk about the dangers. We've talked about this before, but I wonder if you could just explain how that state operator is, is operating in this space and the threat that it, it offers to our national security here in the US. Thank you for that question. So broadly speaking about national security threats via the use of cryptocurrency, North Korea is prime example. North Korea is very technically advanced in the hacking of cryptocurrency exchanges and um, other virtual asset service providers. They use those stolen funds then to help fund their nuclear program. Not only do they steal funds from, you know, not only US-based but global uh, cryptocurrency exchanges, um, they then cash out the um, cryptocurrency that they stole. Um, they also uh, in addition to North Korea, there's other national security risks. We talked about terror finance briefly, but there's also the transnational organized crime risk of organized groups, whether it's drug cartels remitting uh, profits over international borders that see this as a useful tool because of that borderless nature, the large dollar value. And unless you have that intelligence of, of this particular transaction is linked to illicit activity, it just gets flown in mess with the rest of the transactions. It's not particularly identified as specific uh, suspicious um, without some sort of intelligence that's external to the blockchain. Um, another use is the sanction evasion and uh, you know the movement of funds for a Russian oligarch. So there's a variety of threats that cryptocurrency is currently being exploited uh, that pose national security threats to the United States. Thank you. So what would you suggest? Uh, so we've, we've had a number of bills come through this committee that uh, 
for instance, would uh, would take away uh, jurisdiction of the SEC that's been a primary mover in the space and place it with the uh, commodities, commodities futures uh, uh, agency. What, what would you recommend in terms of our response to try to deal with some of these vulnerabilities that are uh, present in the digital asset space? Uh, I think first step in something that legislation can do is address the US institutions that are dealing with this. And there's been a lot of good proposals about um, adding transparency and whether that regulator is the SEC who has a lot more broad experience investigating financial crimes compared to the CFTC, which they, they also do a good job, but the depth and breadth of what the SEC has been doing, just, just purely from a number of SAR filings, the CFTC barely gets a couple hundred a year, and there's you know tens of thousands that the SEC receives. So they're just a little bit more used to dealing with that financial crime aspect. Um, so with the US legislation, it still doesn't change the underlying features of the cryptocurrency, and that's, uh, I'm concerned that we might have great rules, then if the US institutions follow them, that's wonderful, but US, uh, citizens and customers will still be victims of those external organizations that are going to come here because we have you know, a robust economy and we have people with money that they can steal through these exchanges. So we might be able to adjust and, and limit some of the uh, issues we've seen within exchanges, but it's not going to stop being a useful tool for criminals since they're international in nature. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My I expired, I yield back. Ranking member yields back. Uh, now we turn to the vice chairman of the subcommittee, gentleman from Ohio, Mr. Davidson, for five minutes. Uh, I thank the chairman. Thank you uh, to our witnesses. Uh, appreciate having this hearing to kind of correct the record. I mean, there's a, a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there uh, on this topic in particular. And, and uh, no, I'm not calling for a disinformation governance board or a ministry of truth to set the record. We can have hearings like this. and. Hopefully, uh, uh, an honest, free press will uh, get the word out as well. Um, you know, Mr. Hughes, in your testimony, you state, quote, any policy response to the threat of money laundering should embrace the transparency of the blockchain and bolster the power of trans transaction analytics. Um, you know, it, at that basic level, the idea that it is on a public, immutable, distributed ledger uh, that's fully auditable, uh, it, it answers a lot of the misinformation and disinformation. Uh, do you believe that our current uh, BSA AML framework for all money service businesses and banking, financial services in the United States allows for su sufficient reporting requirements uh, in this space? Well, I think currently you see a majority of um, digital asset activity on centralized intermediaries like exchanges, and so they are, you know, a, a, the big exchanges in this country are subject to the MS. They are money services businesses subject to the BSA. I believe they report SARS. Um, I think with respect to blockchain analytics, and so that's a very important uh, important piece of the puzzle. I think you're exactly right. Blockchain analytics is crucial. Um, everybody, not only law enforcement, but everybody in the industry really uses it because you all have services and you want to maintain the integrity of the services. You want them to be used for lawful purposes. And so they're a very great tool to ensure um, you're safeguarding your services in that way. It can be improved. Um, there, you have an immutable record that goes back to the beginning of the chain. Uh, the information um, about what wallets are problematic and what transactions may be illicit 
That could speed up. You could get that out to people faster so their services can safeguard themselves more quickly. You can spot exploiter wallets and you can spot illicit flows more quickly. I think that technology is gonna develop as blockchain analytics continues to be used, especially as more collaboration between uh, the private industry and law enforcement um, occurs. Um, largely, I think a lot of the debate about what to do on-chain with security and stopping flows um, has to do with the basic debate about regulating software, the development of it and the use of it. That is not a debate that we've really had in this country or anywhere else. It's just beginning in this country as well as overseas, and I think that there are a number of um, legislative proposals which actually propose. Yeah, well, we, we definitely have people that want the everyone to get permission to do virtually everything from the government or via their, you know, credentialed third-party uh, agent, uh, and and uh, that's just kind of dystopian for a lot of us. Uh, and I think the for a lot of the people back home, uh, prosecutors, uh, law enforcement folks, they're just looking at it going, how do we catch the bad guys? And they're used to using the current framework uh, to catch the bad guys. Uh, and they just want to know that, hey, in a new era, they can continue to use some sort of framework to catch the bad guys. Uh, you know, Ms. Ms. Uh, uh, Kotorowski, uh, I thought you did a nice job in your written testimony. It's pretty thorough and extensive. I enjoyed all your testimonies, but I particularly thought you did a nice job explaining the architecture of blockchain in particular. And uh, when you look at one of the things that people uh, target, anything that you would anonymize, uh, one of the challenges with some uh, blockchain applications is if you've got you know, hundreds of uh, Bitcoin, as an example, in a self-custody in a wallet, which is still permissible and legal in the country, uh, and you move it, then it obviously to somebody is obvious that you have that many coins in a wallet. So there are legal and rational reasons why someone would want to provide a little more anonymity. That alone should tell you that it's not entirely secret. So could you elaborate on that and legitimate uses of anonymizing transactions? Thank you for your question. And it's a very important one to balance um, as a former prosecutor, um, combating criminal activity and preserving some of the fundamental rights in the US that we hold dear, which includes privacy. There are um, ways for law enforcement to investigate and trace assets on the blockchain because of its traceability and immutability, even if individuals are using self-hosted wallets because they will interact under our current US robust AML framework with centralized exchanges or on off ramps when they exchange their digital assets for uh, fiat. Yeah. And the, they will go through that process. Yep. Thank you. I wish I had longer with each of you, and in particular, the idea of debunking the idea that lots of SARS equals lots of illicit activity. So, but my time has expired. I yield. Time has expired, indeed. Dr. Foster is recognized for five minutes. Uh, thank you. Um, just, I'd, I'd like to first get an idea of actually where we are in terms of anonymity. Uh, just to be specific, uh, Ms. Jimenez, if, if you had $10,000 of uh, Bitcoin that you just gotten from a ransomware attack, do you believe that you know what's necessary to make that anonymously arrive as dollars in your bank account through a series of whatever transactions are necessary? In a, in a way that uh, Mr. Levin could never dis discuss, find, uncover that you, you return that money to yourself. Thank you. 
I believe there are ways, and let me cite a statistic for that since I am an economist. So there was previously cited the colonial pipeline ransomware, uh, and there was a success in that case where part of the ransomware was recovered. And that's with knowing that ransomware, in fact, happened. It was a public event. But that was in June of 2021. The next six months of 2021, there was another almost 800 ransomware attacks that were about $488 billion or million dollars, and there was zero recovery on any of those to date. It's possible something in the future might be uncovered, but there, there are occasional successes, and I and applaud the efforts of the blockchain analytics, but there's many, many, many more instances that are not caught at all, and the people who have been damaged by ransomware, maybe eventually getting that money back does not undo the damage. Your business is already shut down. You already were waiting hours in line for gasoline because the, you know, the pumps weren't no. working. Your healthcare provider was sending you to no. different No, and the damage is clear. That's not yes. the, I just, it's a technical question. I mean, yeah, Ms. Karowski, do you do believe that you could, um, you know, take a bunch of stolen Bitcoin and what, where everyone knows that that's a you know a criminal wallet, and then go through a series of transactions and and gradually and make it return to your bank account in a way that uh, no one could figure out who it was. I believe that we have tools that would make tracing the Bitcoin, which is on a public. But, ledger, okay, but no, you're allowed to put it through mixers. You're allowed to convert it to Monero. You know whatever whatever's necessary. Take it offshore. Put it through. Um, you know self-hosted wallets. You're allowed all of those things. Do you believe that you could launder it and put it back in your bank account in a way that no one could detect it with, with what's in place right now internationally? I believe in the U.S. we have strong uh, law that would With what's in place internationally, is, is, could, could you do it? Not, not, if you're allowed to go offshore, could you do it? I think the U.S. needs to help our foreign partners but are not all our capacity. foreign partners are going to co cooperate with what's in place internationally. Is it, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, do you want to try answering that? Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, Congressman. Yeah. Were, were you yes, asking me? correct. Yeah. Uh, I think the primary, the short answer to your question is yes, I think you could. The easiest way to do that would be to go to an exchange like Garantex in Moscow, uh, where you could go offshore to a non compliant exchange. Right. Uh, so, so what you're saying is regulating the on and off ramps is insufficient to protect, pre prevent money laundering. That as long as you can take the on ramp, go offshore with it, with self-hosted wallets or whatever, do all your dirty work offshore, and then return it back on an on, an on ramp, it's it's actually. And now, now, what are the regulatory regimes that could work that would prevent that? Did, has someone proposed something that would actually? prevent that from happening and what would be necessary for it? Uh, there, thank you again for that question. Uh, there are efforts, I think, that there are tools that the U.S. currently has and currently is attempting to use. At the end of the day, I think it's attempting to try to close gaps. One of those tools OFAC took by sanctioning Garantex. Uh, there could be other efforts as well, largely by, inter by, by attempting to use the leverage that we have against, uh, against foreign actors, which might include uh, uh, through our alliances, through our attaches, to ensure that those offshore exchanges, the ones that are non-compliant, become isolated. They effectively become radioactive to the rest of the, of the world. That's not a perfect system, um, and uh, bless you, uh, but there are, frankly, there are no perfect systems in this. I respectfully suggest that, that is, it is much better to have a, an, an, an offshore compliant, non-compliant exchange than it is to be driving the compliant exchanges here in the US 
so that I couldn't do that out of my Coinbase account or out of my Kraken account. But I agree, that is a gap. Yeah, yeah. Mr. Levin, have you, do you have any ideas on how you could actually prevent this um, internationally, given some number of non-compliant entities offshore? Yeah, I think, I think we need to be focused on the disruption efforts that are possible with the existing authorities, both in the intelligence community and law enforcement. We've seen, you know, we've assisted in helping the US government also seize foreign exchanges like BTCE, where that was taken down and all of the assets were seized by US authorities where that type of problem exists. Thank you, yield back. Thank you, gentlemen, yields back. Mr. Rose of Tennessee is recognized for five minutes. <clears throat> thank you, Chairman Hill, and thank you to our witnesses for being with us today. Mr. Lisak, I kinda wanna pick up uh, where you just were. We see a lot of illicit financial activity occur on a global scale and involve cross-border transactions. Therefore, whatever we do from a policy perspective will be of limited effect unless we can facilitate coordination with foreign regulators and law enforcement, it seems to me. Would you describe how we can improve this coordination be going beyond or building on what you were just saying? Yes, and thank you for that question, uh, Congressman Rose. Um, yes, I think there are a couple of different approaches to it. Uh, there are some things, of course, that the U.S. can do unilaterally. Uh, there are, if you're a foreign MSB, if you're a foreign money services business, FinCEN right now has, since 2011, has the authority to, to uh, charge you. Um, you can use sanctions authority or sections 311. Internationally, however, we are more limited in terms of our ability. We can't fly to Moscow and apprehend the Garantex uh, uh, officials. Um, but what we can do is uh, uh, drive capacity building overseas with our attaches. We can drive further expertise so that uh, uh, firms like Chainalysis and other uh, blockchain analytics firms are being used elsewhere through our foreign allies to ensure that those entities are, um, uh, that, that that technology, that financial crime detection technology is effectively exported, not exported in literal sense, but that it's used by our allies and by those with a common interest, which is at the end of the day, it's maintaining US leadership in this space, which is by, you know, maintaining the leadership that we have as, as the tip of the spear when it comes to financial crime intelligence. Thank you, Ms. Kodakarski. Would you like to expand on that or give us your view? Yeah, uh, yes, thank you for the question. I think it's important, one, because to look inward also before we look to support the, our foreign partners. In the U.S. and in my experience, both uh, at the Department of Justice and in the industry, is that there is a lot of work being done to identify bad actors who are using loopholes and arbitrage of foreign jurisdictions, but it's not just limited to the digital asset space. So when we look to help our foreign partners close loopholes to stop illicit finance, um, we should do that in a way that's not just focused on cryptocurrency, but on hawalas or banking systems or sectors like gold and other commodities around the world that Russia or China are ex exploiting. Because ultimately, we live in a global society where movement of funds, even outside of the U.S., could have detrimental impact on U.S. national security and business interests. 
Thank you. Mr. Hughes, we are seeing certain rules and regulations implemented abroad related to market structure as well as to requirements to prevent money laundering and terrorist financing. Do you believe that it's necessary for the U.S. to copy other countries' regulatory regimes in order to effectively combat illicit finance in crypto? Thank you for the question. I wouldn't say it's necessary to copy. I think we can, um, to the extent someone's ahead of us, gain a little inspiration about what they're doing. I particularly think of Europe in this regard. Um, with the market in crypto assets regulation, they've put the first thing first, which is regulating centralized entities that perform traditional finance-like functions, like actually serving as intermediaries for digital assets. Um, and, and they have really focused on those entities um, on a whole range of issues, investor protection issues, but uh, in addition to that, uh, money laundering issues as well. The issues with how you regulate software, the DeFi question, they have put that off to a second round of, of policy making, which they are just now starting, and they're starting in earnest. Um, some initial uh, proposals and conclusions in that regard aren't going to be due out of the uh, EU Commission until the end of 2024. I think there's plenty of time and opportunity now for us to start engaging in these conversations so we can look to that model to see how to structure our debate. And as our time runs out here, my time runs out, uh, maybe for the record you could could share with us other views of what we can learn from the efforts of other countries that seem to be making uh, more progress to bring digital assets inside the regulatory perimeter. If you can answer that for the record, I'd appreciate it. My time has expired, yeah, I yield back. Gentleman yields back. Mr. Kasten of Illinois is recognized for five minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Mr. Levin, I wanna um, start, I just wanna make sure I don't misquote you. In your written testimony, you described the inherent ineffectiveness of using crypto for terrorism finance um, because of the, the blockchain. I just want to make sure, nodding your head, I'm not misquoting you. I, I read that because um, 2020 report from the Trump administration, DOJ, said criminals use cryptocurrency to facilitate crimes and avoid detection in ways that would be more difficult with real money. Also said criminals have used cryptocurrency in large amounts transferred across international borders as a new means to fund criminal contact from child exploitation to terrorist fundraising. 2021 GAO report, virtual currencies have been central to the rise of drug sales in the US, especially fentanyl and synthetic opioids. 2022, Senate Homeland Security Committee uh, said that crypto is almost exclusively the required method of payment for ransomware attacks. And in May of 2023, senior intelligence officials said that half of North Korea's nuclear missile program has been funded by cybercrime and cryptocurrency threat. Those are legit national security experts. Do you stand by your statement? that cryptocurrency is inherently ineffective for terrorism finance? Just a yes or no. Cryptocurrency has been ineffective for Hamas crowdfunding. Uh, uh, um, okay, so, so we're not going to say that, I'm gonna come back to that, we'll, we'll, but we'll take your limitation. My second question for you, Mr. Levin, um, or Levin, I'm sorry if I'm pronouncing that one way or the wrong. In uh, February, Chainalysis um, said that, estimated that there were $21 billion of illicit transactions, but noted that that depends solely on on-chain intelligence. Does Chainalysis have any tools to quantify illicit activity that happens off-chain? No, we focus on on-chain activity. Okay, um, thank you for that, because in a Wall Street Journal report from October 27th, Blockchain analysis shows that wallets seized by the Israeli government for being connected to Hamas, as you just noted, received some $41 million in cryptocurrency, 
Between 2020 and 2023, according to Israeli blockchain firm Bytok, more than 99% of that came in Tether. That would be an off-chain transaction. No, the Tether transactions would be on-chain. Mr. Menez, would you like to comment on that? It depends on the type of transaction, whether it happened within an exchange or, or not. Um, I'm not familiar with that exact fact pattern, but many terror finance um, fundings have gone, happened within exchanges. I don't know the details of that exact example, but both have happened on-chain, terror financing and terror financing within exchanges. Okay, does anybody know how much Tether is in circulation? Approximately 86 billion. How do you know that number? Tether doesn't report it. Yeah, they do. You can, you can look on the blockchain of every Tether that's ever been issued. Uh, that I'm, I'm, happy, I'm happy to provide a briefing and, and, and show you okay, the amount. Okay, well, let's, uh, we'll follow up on that. Um, in October, as we've mentioned, Wall Street Journal reported that Hamas received $41 million in crypto. There was another 93 million. I want to just focus on the 41 that Hamas received. Um, November 12th, Wall Street Journal followed up with a, with a second report. Um, they said that a significant portion of the funds received by Gazan exchanges were from Hamas. Since 2020, crypto has been an essential part of Hamas's operational activity. And there's a lot more quotes. I'd encourage everybody to read it. But they note at the end, to obscure the money trail, these exchanges changed the wallet addresses they used each day and sent funds through mixers. Ms. Jimenez, from your research, can you explain to the committee how terrorist organizations use cryptocurrency mixers and other anonymizing technologies for illicit financial activities? Yes, thank you. Uh, as we discussed, there's a, some insight via blockchain analytics for that portion. Um, so methods that they try to use to hide their illicit activity would be, there's actually some blockchains that have less um, transparency. There's uh, mixers that pull together uh, transactions from many different parties, um, and then spit them out in different amounts, so you may not be able to tell you know, which funds went in, went to which um, receiving wallets on the, the other end. Uh, but there's many different methods they can use, and a very easy one is just to go off-chain entirely. But um, I, I want to push back on the myth that all crypto transactions are reported on the blockchain. That's just not true. It's, you know, there's different research that you can cite, but the number I cited in my written testimony was, I believe, about only 10% is on the blockchain. So all this talk about blockchain analytics, it's very limited. I, it's I, helpful, and I applaud the effort, and they've had successes, but it does not give um, a full picture of what's happening in the cryptocurrency crime space. Well, I'd, I'd echo that point, and I, I want to just say I'm, I think there are a lot of interesting things being shared in this conversation about why the blockchain is traceable, and we can talk about how it gets decrypted. But to your point, that's sort of like saying you can't get fat from eating because non-fat foods exist. There's a rich conversation that goes way beyond the blockchain, and if I'm a bad guy, Gentlemen's it's easy to get on and off. Yield back. I thank the gentleman. Turn to Mr. Nickel for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Chairman Hill and Ranking Member Lynch. Uh, on October 7th, Iranian-backed Hamas terrorists killed more Jews on one day than any single day since the Holocaust. This atrocity is a tragic testament to the relentless threats Israel and its people endure. As a nation, we must stand firmly with Israel, our unwavering ally, in these incredibly difficult times, and we must support Israel's right to defend itself against such terror and work diligently to dismantle the financial arteries that enable and embolden terrorist organizations like Hamas. Defeating Hamas is also vital for the safety and well-being of the Palestinian citizens and the civilians in Palestine. 
The actions of Hamas call for a decisive response, and I'm glad that our committee successfully marked up bipartisan bills yesterday to address Iran's financing of terrorist acts against Israel. According to Treasury's terrorist financing risk assessment, the vast majority of terrorist funds still move through banks and money transmitters or are in cash. When they do use digital assets, Hamas and other terrorist groups disproportionately rely on unregulated offshore digital assets like Tether and Binance that have next to no compliance controls. It doesn't seem appropriate to me that these unregulated bad actors can provide U.S. dollars to a terrorist organization. Mr. Levin, how can the U.S. ensure overseas actors effectively enforce its regulations, and how can Congress bolster the jurisdiction of U.S. enforcement agencies, allowing them to extend their reach internationally? Thank you so much, uh, Congressman, for the question. The examples that you cite are you know, relevant for the regulatory regime that we put in place, but just to address the, the quick tactical you know, disruption efforts that are ongoing, Actually, Binance and Tether have both taken action under the direction of the Department of Justice to freeze funds that are associated to Hamas terrorist financing campaigns um, and the affiliates and network of facilitators that Hamas has relied on. And so what I encourage is that we need to continue to foster international collaboration on a tactical operational level to make sure that we can freeze and seize assets when they are. Those relationships could be strengthened a lot by a better regulatory regime domestically that would allow for, for example, stablecoin issuers to be able to have federal oversight at a regulator in the United States. Um, and there would be a better regime of how you can actually foster this type of collaboration uh, between public and private that is necessary for that disruption. Um, you know, that is really where we need to focus on building international cooperation on these uh, exchanges that are registered in foreign jurisdictions and also make sure that we strengthen our domestic industry so that, for example, stablecoins can be issued and administered in this country. Next question to you, Mr. Levin, again. Um, do you agree that the bipartisan market structure uh, and stablecoin legislation that passed in this committee in a bipartisan way would limit the harm from companies like Tether and Binance Binance by regulating digital assets and bringing companies back to the U.S.? I do believe that Market structure legislation is essential in, in creating a, an environment where regulated entities can operate here. Um, and I think that it is important that stablecoin bills are passed so that we can have federal uh, prudential supervision of them in this country. And I think it would help, yes, in preventing further harm to the industry. Thank you. Uh, next question for you, Ms. Uh, uh, um U.S. financial services company Cantor Fitzgerald reportedly manages Tether's $72 billion portfolio of treasury bonds, effectively giving them access to U.S. dollars. Is this really appropriate, and what should Congress do about it? I think we need to appreciate the regulatory framework that we have in the U.S., which um, ensures that U.S.-based stablecoin issuers already required under our current anti-money laundering framework to conduct compliance and um, have proactively uh, and quickly been able to freeze and blacklist uh, accounts when OFAC has sanctioned. As it relates to intermediaries or those who support companies, um, they have to do their own due diligence and understand the risk 
that they are taking on if they are funding or supporting companies that may be offshore that are engaging or facilitating other criminal activity. That is something that at the Department of Justice in the money laundering section, we looked at gatekeepers and third party facilitators who knowingly benefited by helping bad actors commit their crimes. And, and my time has expired, but would love to follow up uh, after on what Congress should be doing here. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Nickel. Just uh, as an announcement, we're going to complete our first round of questioning with Mr. Timmons of South Carolina, and then members are offered a second round of questioning at two minutes each. Mr. Timmons is recognized for five minutes. Hey, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Levin, an article in the Department of Justice's Journal of Federal Law and Practice states that despite its purported anonymity, uh, cryptocurrency equips law enforcement with, ex with an exceptional tracing tool, the blockchain. In the same article, the authors describe the highly valuable data set that comes from the blockchain. Would you describe what information is available to law enforcement and how this data can be leveraged to identify criminals using digital assets to, uh, and halt their, act their activity? Thank you, Congressman, for the question. Yes, the, the blockchain essentially provides a record that is immutable and permanent of every transaction that is recorded on that ledger. What then is necessary is that you need to link those transactions to the entities that have put them there and determine you know, whether those are illicit transactions or whether those are transactions that are going through one of the on-ramps or off-ramps. The tool that is provided to the government from a company like Chainalysis is that we provide that map so that a law enforcement agent can take a complaint that involves a ransom payment or a terrorist financing payment or a campaign and move that to the full network of transactions that resulted in those funding transactions. So you could look at what exchanges were used in funding and financing those, and then due legal process can be served to those exchanges to get records to identify the individual people involved. You can also find what common victims there may have been to any of those crimes, and also what is the full network and supply chain that enables those types of crimes to happen. Thank you for that. Can you provide some examples where the blockchain has helped law enforcement com uh, combat criminal activity? Uh, yes, Congressman. There's a lot of different cases uh, that we've been involved in over the last nine years. I would say that you know, we've been involved in cases that involve child abuse material, like Welcome to Video, where 330 people were arrested who were facilitating the distribution of child abuse material, and the administrator was uh, arrested in South Korea. A global effort across 30 countries, really, to disrupt the full network. You know, we've also been involved in many of the terrorist financing seizures and disruption that we've spoken about today. Would you say Colonial Pipeline and uh, recuperating yes. a substantial portion of the ransom would be one of the, the bigger successes? That would be one of the biggest successes in ransomware, as well as the network affiliate that was actually arrested that, where $30 million was seized from that as well. Okay, thank you for that. Uh, Mr. Lisa, we've seen sanctions and enforcement actions uh, taken on certain mixers by the Treasury Department. To the best of your knowledge, why did Treasury and other international law enforcement partners seek a more targeted approach to sanctioning mixers? And, and just to ensure that I understand your question, first, thank you for the question. Just to make sure I, I understand it, is it uh, take a more targeting approach to sanctioning specific mixer, mixers or mixers generally? I would say mixers generally. Yes. Uh, so the Treasury has, I think, so far used two tools at its disposal regarding mixers. Uh, you know, one is the uh, sanctions authority, but also Section 311 authority, at least the, the most recent NPRM uh, from, from FinCEN on that. 
uh, if there is a broad approach to it, as for instance in the most recent Section 311 proposal, uh, the question is this, first, whether or not there's actually sufficient predication for that. In other words, is every mixer bad? Or can we use just examples of specific ones? Uh, and the other, the other question around that I think is, if there are good uses versus bad uses of mixers. Uh, for instance, as my colleague, uh, Ms. Gordovarsky, had, had alluded to, um, for people to use uh, mixers in, in furtherance of personal privacy as opposed to illicit activity. Um, that's the delicate balance. If there is a broad-based approach, uh, then effectively there's a risk of doing two things. First, you're actually throwing out a lot of good activity, and second, you could be drifting into an area of effectively regulating software which is, a, which is a, a tough road to climb back from. Sure, have, have these efforts uh, been effective in your view um, as far as the, the sanctions? Um, thank you for that question. I, I think there's been limited evidence to show its efficacy. Uh, the one risk of it is which could damage not just efficacy uh, overall, but o efficacy in terms of US leadership in this space is if we, again, do go down a road of doing things like regulating software or not being cognizant of actually doing what the US has always been famous for doing. It's one of the reasons why it's been a leader in the AML space is we, as a country, have taken a risk-based approach. We look at harm and we, we target legislation and policy to address that harm. I don't think that's been the case so far with, with Mixer uh, sanctions. Okay, thank you for that. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. Thank you, Mr. Timmons. Gentleman goes back. Mr. Sherman of California is recognized for five minutes. As far as I know, all the witnesses have businesses here that depend on the crypto uh, ecosphere. That if crypto were to cease to be a thing, you would all lose an awful lot of money. Am I wrong as to any of the witnesses? Uh, I don't depend on cryptocurrency for. I don't have any. I'm not owned by a cryptocurrency company. My clients are not cryptocurrency. What? companies. Ah, the one Democratic witness. I commend the ranking member for her se selection of witnesses. Thank you. Um, we're told about uh, U.S. leadership. I want to point out that when it comes to human trafficking, uh, China's better at that than we are. When it comes to tax evasion, the Cayman Islands is better. We don't, we don't need to be a leader in everything. Uh, I don't know which witness can answer this, but how many crypto, how many Bitcoin transactions are there in the average day? I think there's probably, thank you for the question, yes. Congressman. I, I'm not totally sure, but I would, I would say between 10 and 100,000 in that sort of order. Between 10,000 and 100,000 100, in an order of magnitude. You illustrate the, the point I'm making, and that is as long as crypto isn't a currency, as long as we're talking 10,000 transactions, um, even 100,000 transactions, then we're going to be able to uh, uh, police it a lot more easily than if it ever became a currency. I mean, think of how, does anybody have an estimate? It's credit cards, debit cards, checks. How many US dollar transactions are there in the average day? at least a billion. Um, I see, uh, uh, Ms. I, I can't see your name from uh, all. Last name is Lisa, sir. Le your last name is Lisa, and uh, Thank you. You're, you're nodding. It must be a billion, heck, maybe a billion just at McDonald's. I, I, think, I think a billion is conservative. Right. 
So obviously it's a lot harder to find a tree in a billion, in a, in a forest of a billion trees than in 10,000 to 100,000 trees. Uh, I would say, look, uh, when someone, I've, I've talked to the Israelis about this, when somebody tells you they're going to try to kill you, you should believe them. When an industry says they're going to try to displace the U.S. dollar as, the, as a reserve currency and a medium for international exchange, you should believe them. And if they were ever su successful, um, the power of the U.S. dollar in international exchange is to the point where we tell other countries how much Iranian oil we'll let them buy. And if they don't dare to buy anymore. Clearly, if the U.S. dollar wasn't as important, uh, let's put it like this, the Uruguayan peso is not that important. If Uruguay started telling China how much oil they could buy from Iran, uh, it, it, they would be laughed at. Um, we're told that there are good uses for mixers. Uh, Ms. Jimenez, uh, uh, we're told it's about personal privacy. Um, is that really just a code word for tax evasion? Yeah, you. Yes, sir, thank you for the question. There's, mixers can be used for whatever purpose the end user wants it to be, and it can be right. tax evasion, it could be tariff finance, it could be to hide illicit proceeds. When FinCEN, or the Treasury, released their proposed rulemaking on considering mixers to be um, primary money laundering concern, they do actually have studies and analysis using blockchain analytics that cited the very large percentage of funds that were flowing in and out that were related to illicit activities. So there's, there's some lovely well, stats. Most people even looking head. at illicit activities don't even think of tax evasion as an illicit activity. Uh, uh, you know, some people are thrilled whenever, whenever a billionaire is able to cheat on their taxes. Um, what would be the legitimate use of a mixer? Uh, can you think of one? My specialty is financial crime, um, so I would defer to the other panelists, but I, I want more about how it's can be used badly. I can uh, provide more on that, but um, aside from you know, what the other folks on the panel have already said, I don't have anything to add to that. Well, I think most of the folks in the crypto world think tax evasion is a, uh, a meritorious use of a mixer, and I yield back. Gentleman yields back, and uh, as I noted, we will have a, a second round of questions now for the members who want to participate. And I'm going to uh, hold the clock at two minutes for that second round, and I'll, I'll start out uh, initially. Uh, in its 2022 National Money Laundering and Risk Assessment, the Treasury Department explained that the greatest source of noncompliance as it pertains to anti-money laundering uh, currency compliance is with digital asset exchanges that are offshore and outside of the U.S. jurisdiction. So, Mr. Lisa, um, can you talk about the importance of MLAT treaties with jurisdictions and what other tools um, that we should use in combating crime in that manner? And then I'm going to ask you, people just generally to comment on, isn't it better if we have a functioning regulatory framework here in the United States that sets out all these rules and expectations in and around digital assets that we can hold out to our partners? Mr. Lisa. Yes, thank you for those questions, uh, Chairman Hill. 
Um, in terms of existing tools that we have uh, for, for international cooperation, I think many of them that FinCEN and Treasury and DOJ already have. They, have, they may need to be better resourced, uh, but they do have expertise. They have public-private partnerships. They have use of sanctions in Section 311 authority, and they have legal attaches in every country where we have an embassy. So they can definitely use that to build better capacity building that simply uh, are not as, not as effective uh, if we're only talking about uh, uh, traditional financial investigations where we're only using cumbersome MLAT processes and effectively wind up not being able to catch any ransomware actors, okay. ransomware predated crypto. And does everybody agree that we need a regulatory framework that clearly outlines regulatory oversight, AML, BSA compliance for digital assets? Mr. Hughes? Absolutely, yes. Mr. Levin? Yes. Mr. Lisa? Yes, I do. Ms. Korolitsky? Yes. Ms. Manis? Yes. Thank you so much. I yield back and I turn to the ranking member now for two minutes of additional questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So according to CoinDesk, uh, off-chain transactions, which refers to transactions occurring on a cryptocurrency network that move outside of the <clears throat> blockchain, uh, those are gaining, those, actually the word they use is exploding in popularity, especially among large participants. So uh, Mr. Levin, if, if, if we have a couple of actors like Iran and Hamas and they trust each other and they move value outside the blockchain. Is that something you're going to pick up? So thank you for the question, Congressman. When you talk about off-chain transactions through trusted networks, that is like using any other of their money laundering Right, so is that a yes or, or a no? Well, I mean, we don't detect anything that's okay. off-chain, but that's... So I, don't, I only have a minute. I'm sorry. I just right. need a quick answer. Mr. Hughes, anything uh, on your end in terms of analytics? Are you going to pick up things if they're moving outside the blockchain? They're moving outside the blockchain. They need a third-party intermediary, and that's right. where often happens. Yeah, and and I think there needs or, to be or a they global can, regulatory they framework. Exchange private keys, right? They could do that. Uh, you could exchange private keys. Or they could have coupons where somebody can ca cash it in later, right? That's another. I'm unaware of coupons. Okay, that's a new one. That's a new. Um, one. So, Ms. Jimenez, is that is that a problem moving out, moving this value where they're saying there are more and more large participants that are using off-chain transactions? Yes. Okay. Is that a trend we're seeing or? You know, I, I like to give credit where it's due when um, the bad actors are seeing that their activity is being traced on the blockchain. They have two options. They could try to obfuscate it on the blockchain or they can move it off. And some are choosing to move it off. And, um, you know, the U.S. Our regulatory flame, uh, framework is still. So law enforcement would not get that rich data that Mr. Timmons talked about if it's off the, off the blockchain. If it's off the blockchain and outside of the United States. Okay, very good, thank you. I yield back. Gentlemen, yields. Gentlemen, recognize the Vice Chairman of the Committee, Mr. Davidson, for two minutes. Yeah, thanks, I appreciate the, uh, the, the kind of bonus round here. Um, Mr. Lynch earlier said that it's beyond arguing that cryptocurrency is the preferred payment system for criminals. That's a nice statement, but is it objectively true, Mr. Levin? Uh, thank you for the question, uh, Congressman. So when it comes to the Iranian economy, the Iranian economy does not run on the blockchain, and so, that is not the well, preferred Well, Iranian choice. criminals or any other criminals, the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency for a reason. Uh, cash is king when it comes to illicit finance, not cryptocurrency. Is, is that beyond dispute? I think, I think Chainalysis put out a report that said it was like 0.12% of all the crypto transactions were uh, illicit. 
uh, and, and all crypto transactions combined are a tiny fraction of US dollar transactions. So could it possibly be objectively true that the preferred currency for illicit activity is crypto? Yeah, no, so I think, uh, thank you for the question, Congressman. When it comes to the set of transactions, we said it was 0.24% of the transactions in cryptocurrency can be linked specifically to illicit activity. And yes, that's a very, very small subset of the overall transaction volume in the traditional financial system. Yeah, and so I, I just think like it's so many fallacies like that, and you know we can't just accept them at face value. Another one, Ms. Jimenez, Ms. Jimenez you, in your testimony, you used the presence of digital asset-related SARS, suspicious activity reports, as an indication of uh, overwhelming amount of crime in the uh, digital asset ecosystem. Uh, you know, in my view, that kind of prejudges it as, uh, you know, guilty until proven innocent. Uh, I, I think the Biden family would want the uh, innocent until proven guilty, given their, their number of SARS. Uh, but uh, according to the Department of Treasury, and I quote, SARS are preliminary in unverified tip and lead information, quote. Given this important context, would it be fair to say that digital asset-related SARS are actually demonstrate uh, U.S.-based Exchanges are trying to comply with the BSA framework. It would be evidence that they're trying to comply, correct? Yes, however, yep. there's also enforcement yep. actions against numerous US-based VAS for failing to file SARS. Thank you. Thank you, the gentleman. Mr. Sherman's recognized for two minutes. Uh, okay, Mr. Levin, you say 0.24% of uh, the crypto transactions are illicit. Uh, does that include tax evasion when you say illicit? Uh, Congressman, thank you for the question. No, it, it doesn't include tax evasion in that number. Well, that's the big market. <laughs> that's cryptocurrency cannot possibly be worth a trillion dollars if it only becomes the currency of, uh, of, 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 uh, of, of drug dealers and human traffickers. It can only compete with the, with the dollar if it gets that tax evasion market. The IRS has testified that there's a roughly a trillion dollars of taxes not paid each year. That means you have to hide three trillion dollars of income each year. That means you have to hide uh, uh, thirty trillion dollars of assets from the IRS over a decade. That's the big market. Um, do you? Does anybody have an estimate of what percentage of the U.S. dollar transactions are illicit? The, sorry, Congressman, yes. the, the estimate for global transactions is somewhere between 3 and 5% of global transactions are actually Wait a part of money. Wait a market. minute. I mean, just the number of burgers purchased with an ATM or uh, with a debit card or a credit card is in the hundred, is, I don't know how many burgers we eat in this country, but it's a lot. Um, to say, when you say 3 to 5%, you're saying of the international transactions are illicit, or, or, or are you counting in your denominator every time we buy a burger? Um, I think it's on the sort of gross flows of international commerce. Okay, the UN so has published these numbers. That it's, okay. May I add, sir? Yes, the, go ahead. The UN number that's frequently cited is an apple and zebra comparison. It's not even apple and oranges that compares a best guess by the UN of the value of all the listed activities divided by global GDP. Neither are comparative to the known, tagged, attributed, cryptocurrency transactions purely on the blockchain versus all transactions. All transactions wildly inflated by wash trading, trading uh, 
between related parties and, and a vast volume of transactions that are not attributed, that they haven't, haven't made a decision either way. Thank you. The gentleman's or not. time has expired. Mr. Rose is recognized for two minutes. Thank you, Chairman. Ms. Kodakarovsky, uh, when the war between Russia and Ukraine broke out in 2022, the former director of cybersecurity and digital and secure digital innovation for the National Security Council at the White House explained that the scale that the Russian state would need to successfully circumvent all U.S. and partners' financial sanctions would almost certainly render cryptocurrency an ineffective primary tool for the state. Secretary Yellen reiterated this sentiment when she testified before the committee last year, explaining that any, quote, large-scale transaction would become apparent, close quote. Since it wouldn't make sense to use crypto for large-scale transactions, it appears that the bulk of Russia's illicit financing occurred through other channels. Do you agree with Secretary Yellen, and could you explain what those other channels are that Russia used and is using for large-scale transactions? Thank you, members, for this important question. I agree that the Russian Federation could not move their entire GDP after sanctions were issued both by the US, UK, EU, which is another component of how important it is for us to collaborate with our foreign partners for a global approach against uh, illicit activity and autocratic regimes. They could not move just to use cryptocurrency because Bitcoin and other digital assets are transparent on the blockchain. They are using and have used other ways. They have laundered money through um, shell companies. They have used art. They have purchased companies that are based in the US and the West. And they have legitimized those businesses to obfuscate um, different laws, including tax here in the US. They have engaged in human trafficking with the use of cash and shell companies and exploitation of other jurisdictions, including Africa, Latin and South America, in a way that surpasses um, all of the criminal activity that they are engaging in using digital assets. Gentlemen, thank, thank you. Uh, my time's expired, but if you'd like to continue to expand on that for the record, we'd appreciate it. Thank you, and I yield back. Thank you, gentlemen from Tennessee. I want to take a moment to submit a few things for the record. First, a bipartisan letter sent to President Biden and Secretary Yellen today by Whip Emmer, Chairman McHenry, Congressman Torres, and myself, along with 50 other members, to better understand Hamas's fundraising through digital assets. Letter sent by Senator Loomis and me to the Department of Justice about the need to go after specific bad actors within the industry. Information from several blockchain analytics firms on the estimates being reported on Hamas's fundraising through digital assets. Letters from digital asset firms and 40 individuals within the US military, intelligence, national security backgrounds on the importance of Congress working together on solutions. And finally, a waiver determination related report to Congress on the renewal of Iraq's sanction waiver for electricity payments. I want to thank our witnesses today for their uh, without objection, those items are added to the record. I want to thank our witnesses today for a great panel. Without objection, all members will have five legislative days within which to submit additional written questions for the witnesses to the chair, which will be forwarded to our witnesses for their response. I ask our witnesses to please be prompt in your responses as you are able, and I wish everybody here on the committee and our witnesses a very happy Thanksgiving. This hearing is adjourned.